0: Hi, right, you're listening to the Coffee and Books podcast. I'm your host Scott. We have a large amount of topics to talk about today. Uh but thanks for joining me. Uh, first off, I just want to say if you're new here, hi. I'm Scott. Um I like to ramble about different topics, uh particularly books that I read and coffee that I'm trying. Uh you know, and I like to talk about of course my dreams, my hopes, uh all that fun stuff. Um it's been a crazy crazy you know, month or so since I've released a podcast. So, I'm going to cover quite a bit on today's episodes, but there are going to be multiple episodes. This one is going to cover what it's like, um, you know, with my dream of moving abroad to another country. And more importantly, I'm going to talk about why that's a very hard and difficult thing to do um, and my journey with it and my process. And my hope is that one day I do get to go to another country and stay there for longer than just, you know, a couple of weeks. Uh, like you would if you were on vacation. So number one, why do I want to live abroad? Um, And what's my background with that? Uh, Well, I have had the opportunity to travel abroad before. Um, I have seen many different countries. I have a large amount of experience going through Europe. I have a good experience in the Middle East. Um, I'd like to go to parts of Asia and South America, but I haven't been there yet. Um, I'm really excited to go see the world, and I hope that I definitely get the chance to do all those things. Having said all that, um, my background and experience is rather limited in living in another country. And I think it's important that everybody at one point in their life or another gets a chance to do that. But, this is the important but, it's very hard to do that. And this is why. Number one, uh, it's hard to move to another country because of the fact that you may not get a job right away or you have to get a job in order to go there. That's another big one that you see a lot so you go apply for a job in a company and you have to basically prove that you would be a very good hire that this company would select you and that would be a good reason for you to go there but they can't just you know find a person in their their country that would make more sense so in other words you can't just go there and say you know i'd like to be a waiter or waitress although those would be jobs that are you know quite available to the masses you know, a restaurant isn't gonna sponsor somebody to come overseas to work at them. So you have to think about it in terms of, okay, what can I do that's a special skill or something on that line of things to get people to go? Uh, Number two, uh, you know, another difficult part of it is that you have to be able to speak the language. Um, No matter where you go, specifically because the, you know, English-speaking world isn't all of the world, you're going to have to learn probably a foreign language and you're going to have to be decent enough at it in order to get noticed. In other words, just because you have a special skill doesn't mean you're going to necessarily be able to integrate very well with their society. So, you know, for instance, I'm right now learning German. I'm doing this for fun. I have kind of a knack for it. Uh, That doesn't mean that I wouldn't want to learn other languages as well. You know, I have an interest, of course, in learning Japanese. I have an interest in Italian and Spanish and all different kinds of languages. But my whole point is that, you know, you start with what you have a knack for or what you're interested in and you kind of go from there. Um, You know, I'm not saying you have to be a complete perfect speaker and you have to nail everything down by the time you get there, but it would give you a good foundation and help. Uh, you know, especially with integrating with a complicated society. You know, going to other countries, like specifically in Asia, are going to be a lot more difficult than if you were to go to somewhere that you're already kind of familiar with. You know, for instance, if you were an American moving to Canada, you're probably going to be pretty, you know, easy to, you know, integrate into Canadian society pretty well. All right. Having said all that. Um, what are some downsides uh, of course besides the difficulty of applying for a job there's the fact that you might miss big moments in your friends lives and your relationships with your parents would be more difficult because it'd be harder to you know spend time away from them and they don't get to see you as often or you don't get to see them as often uh, you know the time difference that's a big one uh, you know having a spouse and being able to go to another, another country sounds great in theory but i think it's just romanticize that people just pick up their things and go and go live in another country Um, having said that there are a lot of positives to it Uh, so you know for instance if you have a special skill or something that sets you apart or you have a language that makes you know you a, a multilingual and talented you know these are things that might get you in the door easier you know these are things that would get you hired probably even better in your own home country you know learning spanish for instance in the united states would come in handy Uh, quite a bit here actually so if you speak Spanish that's a good leg up on other languages okay so having said all that um, I plan on applying for more jobs and I'll tell you keep you guys in the loop if something big happens but for the most part I'm kind of expecting a 99 percent fail rate maybe even a 99.99.99 percent you know you get the idea you know the, the small likelihood that something like that happens you know is very very small It's not going to just happen, you know, I'm pretty well established here where I am. But, you know, that's not to say that I'm not a dreamer and that things can't happen or that opportunities don't come, you know, every day, but sometimes they do appear unexpectedly. So I'll keep you guys posted and maybe you'll hear from me in the future about that. Okay, so that's kind of part one, talks about all that good stuff about traveling. Now, let's talk about part two. Part two is going to be covering my first book of the day. It is called Barbarians by Terry Jones. Uh, It came out a few years ago. It is a BBC book as well as documentary series. It covers the alternative history of barbarians. So what does alternative history mean? I think all history books need to be written this way. This book covers the history of the Roman Empire but in particularly from the other point of view. The point of view of the people who the Roman Empire was invading. Something that I think many historians forget. So This is the point of view of what it would be like to be a citizen of Germania, you know, aka Germany, Gaul, which is France. You know, you had countries like Dacia, which is what modern-day Eastern Europe is. Um, You know, you had Attila the Hun, you had the Vandals. These were anyone who basically wasn't uh, Roman. Anyone who wasn't them was an enemy. And that's basically how the Romans viewed the world for a very, very, very long time. Um, You know, the Roman Empire is most notorious for, you know, having become so gigantic and split into two parts, the western and eastern part. Uh, this book series covers the western part, which lasted until the 400s, uh, You know, but it was over a thousand years, so that's pretty crazy to me that it, you know, it even lasted that long. But uh, we're going to get into all that today. So we're going to talk about each group of people and what was gained and what was lost and all that good stuff. So barbarians, you're going to start with what they look like, what are they, how do I know what a barbarian is? Many of us have stereotypes that have been passed down to us over the years. Uh, this is partly because of Hollywood's doing. This is also because of other countries and rewriting history, and especially during colonialism, uh, you know, they wanted to make sure that their history lines up with like what those people are like. Uh, you know, to give off power, to give off a vibe of, you know, energy that means that you know they are invincible. You know, the idea of like Greece being like. Spartans is, you know, kind of laughable because modern day Greece isn't exactly what the modern or the ancient Greek city-states were. So that's kind of a first example. Um, You know, Greece was considered barbarian, which is a surprise to many people. Greece is a country, of course, uh, you know, you would see in modern day world, uh, but Greece and the ancient world was a very, very big deal for science, math, literature, art, philosophy. Um, A lot of the Roman world came from this, and the Romans looked up to the Greeks, but the Greeks had their differences, and in fact, the Romans basically thumbed their nose at them. You know, ancient Greece was basically a vacation ground a lot of the time, especially in the early years of the Roman Empire, Uh, but basically the ancient Greeks were, for lack of a better word, different than the Romans. And they established this through war, they established this through all different kinds of methods. But probably the most notable difference between the Greeks and the Romans and their philosophies and language and everything is that the ancient Greeks were all about creating things. They were definitely not ones to talk about, argue with, with philosophy or math or art or science, but they had created so many different inventions that we use today. Um, and it's a shame because Rome wiped out a lot of Greece. They invaded it. They destroyed it. A lot of the cities and towns that we think of, like Corinth, Uh, were basically all but destroyed, their population enslaved, or pretty much, you know, you know, killed off because Rome needed to do that in order to create living space for its occupants. It's a pretty terrible thing, but the Roman Empire basically wiped out a huge portion of civilization, and many people don't even realize it, that the Romans were pretty much brutal to everyone, even their neighbors. Uh, So that's just ancient Greeks, though. Um, and to give you an example of the science and technology of the ancient Greeks, just think think no further than the discoveries that were recently made about, uh, you know, ship collecting, you know, where they've discovered that there were devices off of the coast of shipwrecks, uh, you know, that the Greek, ancient Greeks used to navigate the planet, you know, basically like a ancient day GPS, something that we wouldn't have for, you know, thousands of years. So there's always that. Um, now, like I said, another part of the world we're going to talk about is modern-day France, but is actually back then called the Gauls. Um, the Gauls were a loose uh, federation of tribes. Uh, basically, were invaded by Rome, uh, in particular Caesar, is well known for invading the modern-day countries of Germany and France um, and Britain. Uh, but basically, back in the day, the Gauls were also scientifically, you know, advanced as well. You know. Like I said, there's this common misconception that barbarians were considered these people with long braided hair and warlike attitudes and were not civilized and Rome was trying to create civilization or bring civilization to them and how dare these barbarians reject it. But basically the Gauls were advanced. They had their own religion, they had their own language, they had their own society, farming equipment, you know, things that wouldn't be seen until the Industrial Revolution, you know, two thousand years later almost. That's what Gaul had and Gaul was big, so it definitely had the potential to rival Rome, uh, but, you know, Rome was good at one thing, which is, of course, war, and, you know, they were able to basically defeat the Gaul, the Gauls and the Gaulish Empire and the Germans and the British, uh, but most famously, you know, Germans and the British and even the Gauls fought back, uh, you know, the, the Roman Empire famously made lines in the sand and saying, we're not going any further than this, um, a great example is Hadrian's Wall, where you know in the north, you know in modern-day Scotland, that is where the others lived, <laughs> and then you had below, which is where the Romans lived, uh, just to give you an idea. Uh, but you know you had these people, like I said, the Germans, the Gauls, the British, you know, or you know those people, those groups of people that lived in those countries, you know, were very different than the Romans and had very many different attributes, but like I said, they had their own science and math and art and language as well. Okay, now we're going to get into what happened in a more later setting of the Roman world, which is towards the end, but we're going to get into where did the Huns come from. That's probably the biggest mystery. We still don't know a lot about the Huns. We don't know where they came from. We just know that they were there. And that they kicked butt. Uh, they were pretty much the invincible archers that Mongolians kind of developed into in later years. But essentially, the Huns were early invaders of the Roman Empire. By this point, Roman Empire is huge. Like I said, uh, taking up most of the quote-unquote modern world back then. Uh, but basically, the Huns came from what was believed to be the you know the Eastern Europe, steeps of Asia and Turkey and all that area, and they just invaded. They went everywhere, you know, and what would be Thrace and what would be Greece and what would be places like, you know, all the way to the Italian peninsula, Germany, Switzerland, Austria. You know, they kinda just went wherever they wanted and took whatever they wanted. But the Huns were different. They weren't uncivilized, which I think is the mistake that many people think. But they were nomads, they were wanderers, they didn't you know, have a place to live that was just like a town or a city, unlike Rome. You know, they wandered, and they basically, in order to survive, they had to have food supplies to feed their massive army. So what did they do? They raided towns and villages, and that is how often, you know, they were able to survive, especially in when invading ancient Rome. Uh, now, does this make them, you know, like bad villains that, you know, were destroying the empire? Not necessarily. I mean, they could have been doing this out of desperation, but you know, we have to realize Rome wasn't exactly an innocent party either. They often had their own versions of bloodbaths and sports, and you know, they definitely caused quite a few wars, you know, and eliminated countries like Carthage and Numidia and all different groups of people all over the world. So we definitely know and have proof that the Huns, although extremely powerful, they didn't leave much behind. Um, and that's probably the most interesting part. You know, we don't know what their language was like and we don't know, you know, what happened to most of the people. They just kind of either integrated and married into society. Uh, you know, they could have kept wondering, um, but basically the idea is, is that the group of people, the, the Huns, were just kind of there and invaded and got to the Rome and it caused a lot of problems for the Roman Empire. You know, Rome couldn't defend itself against the, you know, the barbarians, you know. And you know, you had other groups of people that were affected by the Huns moving in too. Like I said, I mentioned a group called the Vandals, and there's also a group called the Goths, you know, the Visigoths. Uh, these were groups of people that were displaced by the Huns coming in there. So not only are the Romans trying to defend themselves, but so is everybody else. And this is a creating a domino effect. The more groups of people are looking to survive and are desperate for food and you know, power or whatever else it is that's keeping them alive, the more dominoes are gonna fall. And like I said, the Roman Empire had a multitude of its own problems already, like being the, not just to mention the fact that it was large, uh, but it was heavily reliant upon foreign military, you know, buying barbarian auxiliaries and you know, substituting its soldiers for barbarians. You know. The line between what a barbarian was and is, uh, you know, according to Rome, blurred towards the end of its existence and eventually it came down to whether or not someone was christian or whether someone was pagan you know paganism being the main religion of the day for most of rome's life and christianity being the upstart that is coming in to take over the empire okay so you have all of that going on all that's talked about in this book what did i think of this book excellent five out of five recommend it um definitely check it out why Uh, because it gives you so much history and background, um, you know, about those countries. And for one thing, I did not know a lot about them. I wanted to know more. This is a great place to start. It's going to get you interested, especially if you have no clue of anything about Rome. This is going to be like, hey, this is a whole other side of, like, what happened to Rome. You know, it gave me a great idea of what happened and why the Roman Empire fell. Okay, so we got all that now. Now we're going to talk about our last book of the day. It's called The Bomber Mafia by Malcolm Gladwell. Um, That book is excellent as well. I gave it a 4 out of 5. main reason being is The Bomber Mafia covers World War II's history. In particular, it covers the history of precision bombing, which I think is a great concept to talk about. Because unlike other forms of warfare which we've talked about before, precision bombing is something that is still used today. And the idea is, is that precision bombing was the idea of if we could bomb a specific point, we could weaken whoever, an enemy, to its knees. And we don't need to hit you know, all of them, we just need to hit the strategic points to make the empire buckle. And that's what would happen. Uh, and so basically back in World War I, going that far back, the idea was is that when aerial warfare was invented, early on you know there were things like dogfights and air battles but the main method of an you know attack for a lot of planes was bombing and you know bombing wasn't accurate in the early 1900s and it was random and it unfortunately caused a lot of unnecessary civilian deaths Um, you know many people just said bomb as many people as you can and in order to hit maybe some of your targets and that's basically what happened in early aerial warfare Uh, but later on there was a group of people who developed this method in you know Alabama of all places and called it precision bombing. The idea that you know you could be scientifically advanced enough to hit a specific target um, and that's all you would need to hit. you know A good example would be a weapons factory. you know if they could hit the one weapons factory that's operating in that whatever country, you know there would be no weapons that are being produced anymore that could in theory kill Americans. Uh, you know, which is a good example of what was used during Germany. Uh, you know, there was a, a ball bearing factory that was bombed and, you know, attempted to be bombed repeatedly, but they kept missing it. Uh, you know, because the idea was release as many bombs as possible and eventually precision bombing gave way to the idea of if we hit this one place, it's going to stop them from pro- providing all the ball bearings that are used and weapons, you know, and things like guns and tanks and all different kinds of mechanisms used in war. The loss of those ball bearings caused a a massive delay for most of the weaponry for Germany during World War II. So that's just one key victory that did happen. But you know the idea of precision bombing really came into effect when America was fighting Japan during World War II. Uh, You know the idea was is that an incendiary bombs or Bombs that cause damage to a large portion of area, um, you know, in Japan would be more beneficial than precision bombing. The idea is that Japan is mainly made of wood, you know, places in Japan were primarily used, you know, constructed in a specific art style and method, Uh, you know, and of course, you know, with it being made out of wood, everyone thought, well, you know, things like napalm would take care of the rest. Uh, you know napalm would be used of course but you know many people associate napalm with the Vietnam War and what makes uh, the, you know this book so exciting and fascinating and thrilling is that it talks about how that was the method that almost won the war the precision bombing you know the idea of we're gonna like I said go in there and hit just a few key targets but you know the U.S. had its hands in many different pots and it came up with the idea of the atomic bomb the atomic bomb was ready first, before a land invasion needed to happen of Japan. We all know what happened, the United States dropped the atomic bomb, Japan surrendered after the second one was released. Um, and that is the end-all be-all of World War II. And of course, you know, everything else, as they say, is history. So what happened, what, how did precision bombing not win that round? Well. Precision bombing, like I said, is used today. It kind of lost the battle but won the war, so to speak. You know, It's used today in so many different ways in our technology that it's not even a contest anymore. Precision, precision bombing, the way that people use warfare today, has completely revolutionized and changed the lives of pretty much anyone on the planet. Because, as I can say this, it is an oxymoron. There's no such good thing as warfare. You know, there's no good thing that can come of killing other people. But the idea of striking a particular place instead of just killing everyone mercilessly uh, is very important. Uh, And the reason why is because they thought if we bomb specific places, it would end the war sooner. You know, like I said, make it end quicker, save more lives. Uh, Hence the whole oxymoron of the thing of they thought precision bombing would literally save lives. Okay. so. Is this something that the average history lover would like? Absolutely. Um, Malcolm Gladwell is well known uh, for going on his random hyperfixations and focuses on history. Definitely check this one out. Um, Okay, so that covers all our topics today, two books and living abroad. Uh, If you guys have any questions about history, feel free to email me. Um, I'd love to tell you guys more about the Vandals, the Huns, and I'd love to tell you more about World War II. Um, I'm excited for my next, next book, though. It's going to be the history of Portugal. So we're going to go back to Portugal again here and relive my vacation, which was about three months ago. Anyway, thanks for listening. Hope all of you had a wonderful day. Happy weekend, everyone. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to share this podcast with everyone else. Thank you.